Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Francois Ozon's 2000 film, Under the Sand. This is a mysterious and emotionally devastating film that has haunted me ever since I watched it. It stars Charlotte Rampling as a woman named Marie Drion, and she and her husband, Jean Drion, go on vacation. It's set in France. They go on vacation, they go to the beach one day, and she is sunbathing. She happens to fall asleep. Before she falls asleep, Jean is on his way to the ocean. He's going to go for a swim. She wakes up, and she can't find him. He has completely disappeared, and she doesn't know what has happened to him. The film was inspired by an incident that Francois Ozon witnessed when he was a child. The film is really about this woman trying to come to terms or not with the disappearance of her husband. This episode does include spoilers. I talk about everything in the film. I look at how this film explores a woman's emotional world, her inner world, and what she's going through. I talk about grief and loss, about the pain of having somebody disappear in your life, and I hope that you'll listen to the full episode and that you will find something in it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and you can also get access to rewards and extras. I have merchandise, I have extra episodes, I have all kinds of things for patrons. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you do get a shout out on each episode. I know that these might be tedious to hear these names, but I like to do this because I want to acknowledge the people who make this podcast possible because my patrons on Patreon allow me to pay for streaming sites, pay for research, all kinds of things that go into creating the podcast because there are costs and expenses that help me pay for the website and all kinds of things. And so I just like to take a moment to acknowledge them and thank them and give them a place in the podcast. So those wonderful people are Kelsey, Aaron, Rachel, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand that, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. I will read a review if you write one on iTunes. I'll read it in a future episode of the podcast. You could tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films and the work that I'm doing. You could send me an encouraging message or just interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. Before I get into Under the Sand, 
I'm going to do my regular segment that I've added to the podcast called What I've Been Watching. I talk about two recent documentaries that I watch that I want to let you know about and they bring up issues of the past and the present and history and also the political situation that's happening here in the United States with the presidency of Donald Trump. So there are different things that I want to talk about for a little while about these two films and I think they ask us to really look at history and to look at our relationship to it. Then I talk all about Under the Sand. So let's get started. First of all, I apologize if my voice sounds a little different or strange. I have been sick for the past week and a half. I'm just now starting to feel better. My sinuses and my nose was stopped up really bad. And this was just one of the worst illnesses that I've had in years. I don't know if I had a cold. I don't know if I had the flu. It just really wiped me out. I've just been so exhausted and tired and just really struggling to recover from it, but I do feel a lot better than I did previously. So if my voice sounds nasally or strange, that's why. But I really want to talk about Under the Sand. And before I get to that, I just want to talk a moment about a few other films that I've seen recently. And I also want to give you a little update about Filmstruck. I recently talked about how Filmstruck is going to stop. It's going to shut down at the end of November 2018. A lot of big name directors have been showing their support for the service. There's been a petition that tens of thousands of people have signed. I know that directors like Paul Thomas Anderson and Martin Scorsese and Christopher Nolan, they have all come out trying to save Filmstruck. Right now, we don't really know what could happen with that. It sounds like Warner Media, the company that sort of owns Filmstruck, it sounds like they're going to launch some kind of direct-to-consumer video-on-demand service in 2019, more towards the end of 2019, with their catalog and maybe they will have those art house or those classic films included in it. We don't know for sure right now, but one good thing has developed and has happened recently and I just read about it a couple of days ago and that is that the Criterion Collection, which was part of Filmstruck, they had something called the Criterion Channel where they made a lot of their library, a lot of their titles available. They didn't just have their films available. They also made a lot of the supplementary content available to stream, which I used in several of my episodes um, to do research and just to deepen my understanding of certain films in their catalog. It sounds like what they're going to do is they're going to create their own standalone streaming service and call it the Criterion Channel and make their library available in that way and continue the other things that they did on Filmstruck and on their channel. They had things like talking about film art and film theory and looking at particular scenes They would interview different people and who would talk about their favorite 
Criterion films. I know they did that with Barry Jenkins. They did that with all kinds of people. So that content will also be available on the Criterion channel. In the the show notes of this episode, I'll give you a link so that if you want to go sign up for it, they don't have any subscribers yet. They're creating this from scratch. And so they're asking people to become charter subscribers, which means that you would be, you would be supporting it, you know, before it has launched and you'll be like an early subscriber and you'll get a little bit of a discount on the monthly amount that you'll have to pay. I have signed up. I want to try to support this in any way that I can, but I will say that it's still heartbreaking to lose Filmstruck. I'm very glad that the Criterion channel is going to continue, but Filmstruck offered all kinds of different films from different distributors. It was also doing a really good job recently of spotlighting women directors. They had a whole spotlight, a whole section on the website that was devoted to female directors. The Criterion Collection, as much as I love it, does not represent as many women as I would like it to. Um, They do a good job with the international and the world cinema, but there's not the kind of female representation that I would like to see. And Filmstruck had a lot of, you know, classic Hollywood and old Hollywood classics that the Criterion catalog doesn't quite have. So this is still a great thing. It's a positive development, but I still mourn the end of Filmstruck. I wish that there was a way to save it and keep it alive and keep it going. I'll take this. I'll take the Criterion channel. I love Criterion a lot. I've talked about many films from the Criterion collection. And so this is positive, good news. I'm just very curious to see how this develops. And as long as I'm doing this, podcast. I will bring you developments when I hear them and when I read about them. So I want to talk about two films that I saw recently that I think that I sort of see connections between the two a little bit. And they're really two films that are engaging with archives and historical imagery, but from different wars. And they're also engaging with the past and the present in unique and interesting ways. The first film that I'd like to talk about is a documentary by a director that I've covered here on the podcast. His name is Radu Jude and he is a Romanian director. There is this documentary he made in 2017 called The Dead Nation and it's really interesting and it was fascinating to watch. It's made completely of still photographs. It's not a moving image film. It's made of these photographs taken by one particular photographer in Romania in the 1930s and the 1940s. And it's just these portraits. It's like these studio portraits of ordinary everyday people. He combines those still images with a voiceover reading excerpts from the diary of a Jewish doctor. And this Jewish doctor in his diary was writing about the rise of fascism and nationalism and anti-Semitism in Romania in the 1930s and in the 1940s. And obviously we have the Second World War from 1939 to 1945. What is interesting and really important about the film is that juxtaposition of we're seeing these portraits of these everyday Romanian people. They're not Jewish and they're smiling and they're, you know, There are group portraits of soldiers, there are portraits of women, there are portraits of children and families, and they look so placid 
and innocent and innocuous. And if you just looked at those photos alone, you would never think of, think that there was mass atrocity happening in Romania or Europe at that time because the Jewish population of Romania was decimated. There were huge, um, a huge death toll of Jewish people in Romania. And as we know, throughout Europe, six million Jews died. And watching this film was chilling for me because it comes just a few weeks after the murder of Jewish people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. 11 people were murdered by a gunman in a mass shooting by a gunman who was anti-Semitic who was a supporter of this president. And this is a presidency. This is an administration that is fanning the flames of anti-Semitism and discrimination and hate. And it's a chilling time to be alive. And it was chilling to watch this documentary and to read the words of this Jewish doctor who did, did survive the Holocaust um, from what I gathered as I watched the documentary. And what captured me as well was to think that perhaps some of the people in these portraits, you know, the ones smiling, maybe they were perpetrators because this Jewish doctor writes about the different atrocities, the different pogroms being committed against the Jewish people of Romania. He talks about very violent and graphic things being done to Jewish people. And when I looked at those photos, I thought, God, were some of, are these some of the perpetrators? It made me think of these really famous images. I don't know if it's one or many taken near Auschwitz of the guards and the people who worked at Auschwitz and they're like dancing and smiling and it's hard to believe that just a few feet away or or meters away that people are are being obliterated that people are being gassed and then cremated and these people are dancing and smiling you look at these photographs and and you think my god the horror that's happening in Romania at that time and people are smiling and life goes on. I don't even know how to put it into words, really. The the capacity for, for evil and atrocity and horror in this world is sort of bottomless. It's just, it it's incomprehensible in every possible way. And it also made me think about these photos that Gordon Parks took during the time of Jim Crow and segregation. And it shows, you know, it's like the I think it's the 1950s, you know, places like in Alabama and, you know, where there was this segregation and, and it's these, at times, these beautiful color photographs of African Americans just living their lives. And then you see the segregation, you see the signs, you know, whites only and the water fountains. And I get really annoyed when people say things like they were born in the wrong decade or they were born in the wrong era. Like it's totally legitimate to love the style and the, you know, the fashion of the 1950s or the 1920s or 30s. That's totally okay. You know, I do too. I love the fashion. But to say that you would want to live in that era is disturbing to me because that is the era of segregation and lynching and terrible racial violence. You don't want to be alive in that time. And black people certainly would not want to go back to that time. I always feel like that's just a really insensitive comment when people say that. But these photographs also remind us of the limits of photography. That when we say a photograph is truth, it's not really. 
to look at these photographs from Romania in the 30s and 40s, you would never think that these people are anti-Semitic. You would never think that possibly some of these people are perpetrators of these things. You would never think that this kind of mass violence was happening in the country at that time. Just looking at these smiling faces, right? Just like you wouldn't if you looked at the smiling faces of the Auschwitz guards. But that's exactly what was happening. And so there's almost this dissonance between the image and the voiceover of this man talking about these atrocities being committed against Jewish people and then seeing these images. And the things that he wrote about in his diary, like the fascism, the nationalism, again, very chilling to hear similar things being said in the United States in 2018. And I often ask myself in terms of the political situation in this country is how much worse is it going to get because it continues to deteriorate where there is one side, it's not both sides, it's one side, it's the right wing, it's the GOP, it's (laughs) Republicans, it's conservatives committing acts of violence against people whether it's black people being shot at a grocery store, Jewish people being killed at a synagogue, famous, you know, very well-known Democrats getting pipe bombs mailed to them. There is one side doing this amount of violence and it's disturbing and it's frightening to see a film about fascism, about the rise of nationalism in a completely different country, in a completely different era, decades and decades ago. It's incredibly unsettling and it reminds us that history is not this march towards progress you know with each year that goes by it doesn't mean we get more progressive and more free and more civil rights these we have to constantly struggle and fight for these things time is not just marching towards goodness and rightness and you know righteousness we have to actually fight for that we have to do that at any time we can regress we can go backwards. Things can get worse. And they are right now. And and it is a scary time. It just, it made history feel very close. And it was a reminder that what happened in the past can happen again. Those things can recur and repeat themselves. And they are in different ways. So another film that I saw and really loved and it really astonished me was a new film by Peter Jackson and it came out this year 2018 and it's called They Shall Not Grow Old. And what Peter Jackson did, the Radu Jude film focused on the Second World War. Peter Jackson's film focuses on the First World War. And I would argue that the First World War is really one of the most important events of the 20th century that in many ways, even though it ended in 1918 and 2018 has been the 100 you know year anniversary of that, the 100th anniversary of that, I would argue that in a way that that war has never ended, that it just had so many ripple effects and that it really was a big reason why we had the Second World War and just all kinds of ways that that war shaped people, shaped our world that we live in now. Peter Jackson had a personal connection to it because his grandfather fought in the First World War. And what he did was that he took these old films, these black and white archival films and footage, and he colorized it. He added sound to it. He replicated, you know, if he saw a man speaking in the film, he had people read the lips 
and to find out what that man was saying. And then he had an actor come in and do the voiceover. And if you see, you know, water or you see any kind of thing that could have made a sound, he recreated those sounds. He blew up the footage to make it larger and to widen the screen as well. And so what he does is that he takes this footage that used to be black and white, used to be very remote from us and very distant, and he makes it alive. And there is this breathtaking moment in the documentary, if you want to call it that. I I guess it's really a mixture of documentary and, um, and fiction. I mean, in a way, he's repurposing this archival footage and creating, I guess, a story or creating a whole new film or a whole new thing with it. And the voiceovers in the film is from interviews with actual men that served in the First World War and them just talking about their experiences. And so you get a sense of uh, the lives of the soldiers in the trenches. It starts from when they're young men enlisting in the war, and then it ends obviously with you know 1918 and the end of the war and that disillusion that has happened by the time those four years have passed so much horror so much death and destruction has happened that they have witnessed and it obviously changed them in so many ways but there's this breathtaking moment in the film where it goes from the black and white footage into the color footage and it's just absolutely stunning like it it just startled me. I don't know if I'll ever forget that moment. It made these men who, this was, this is footage from a hundred years ago. I mean, it's so long ago and it just makes them feel so real and intimate and close to you. You know, it takes these men who have been frozen in black and white still photographs and this very distant archival footage and it really resurrects them and it changes our relationship to these images. And there are people who are upset about the film. It's sort of a controversial film in that way. You know, historians, archivists, some of them don't like that Jackson has, I guess, manipulated this footage. But for me, the emotional impact of it is extraordinary. And I understand those arguments. For me, what he does is just make that history so tangible. You you feel like you're watching a movie. You, you feel like you're watching like a, like a reenactment or, or an actual film. You don't think that you're watching a documentary and it looks like it could have been filmed yesterday. It looks so recent. I don't know. I, I don't know how to put it into words. It's a film that I think you need to experience in the way that it changes your relationship to, to those images, to that footage and those films, and to the war itself and the people who experienced it, the men who fought in it. I, I've just not experienced anything like it before. And so I feel like both of these films, The Dead Nation and They Shall Not Grow Old, they make history electric to us you know, make it real and tangible. And no longer is it this remote and distant thing. The Those people back then lived as we do now. You know, they were caught in the machinery of world politics in a lot of ways, just like we are. And you get the sense of your connection to, to the past. And it's a reminder that history is people. History is made up of people, people who are just like you. People who are as complex and complicated and scared and all of that as you are now. 
and and caught in these larger historical forces that are beyond their control. Just as the Jewish doctor in the dead nation is caught up in this very historic thing, in the violence of fascism and anti-Semitism. And then here we are today waking up to news that 11 Jewish people are, are gunned down in a synagogue. It's horrific. And the people of the, you know, the soldiers of the First World War and what they went through and the horror they experienced and what happened then can happen now. In some ways, it is happening now. And so I think these films change your relationship, not just to the past, but also to the present. That you are here in this moment and what are you going to do? How are you going to stand up? Because I do believe that history can teach us lessons. But the thing is, is that are we going to live? Listen, are we going to learn those lessons? This is not 1930s Romania. This is 2018, the United States. This is not 1918 in Europe. This is a different time, a different place, a different culture, a different everything. But there are parts of both of those histories, those moments that resonate with this moment. I think it asks us, how are we going to shape the present? How are we going to to try to change what we see happening. I don't know the answer to that. You know, Peter Jackson looks at, you know, the British soldiers of the First World War. Radu Jude looks at common Romanian people and the experience of Jewish people in the Second World War. But both of these films leave me thinking about history, but also leave me thinking about the present. And I think history matters profoundly. And I've always thought that. I've always been interested in history since I was a child. And so to me, both of these films are very relevant. And I think they have a lot to tell us about both the past and the present. And they sort of change our relationship to images and to photographs and to footage as well. I think they're asking that of us as well as viewers to think about our relationship with these images and to go beyond them and to go deeper. So I'll stop there. I just wanted to talk about those two films, put them on your radar. Hopefully you can see them if you're interested. And now I will talk more about Under the Sand. Certain films have an attraction, almost a gravitational pull, and we can't quite explain why films come into our lives, why they move us in very deep and almost unspeakable ways. This personal relationship with cinema is one that I'm always trying to articulate on this podcast, and it's always the hardest part, because for me films and certain films in particular are so deeply a part of me and they move me in ways that I can't always explain and I can't always put into words. They have this mystery about them and Under the Sand is that kind of film for me. I don't have a lot of films like that in my life. I would say Jonathan Glazer's film Birth is like that for me. I've done an episode on it, and Michelangelo Antonioni's film La Ventura is like that for me, too. I'd also say Christoph Kishlovsky's The Double Life of Veronique. I've done an episode about it. 
and Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. That's another favorite of mine. I haven't done an episode on that film yet, but I'm working on it, and I will be doing an episode about it. There are just certain films for me that almost transcend the medium. I guess you could say that they no longer exist just on a screen or just on celluloid or or digital the way some films are made now that they transcend the material the time and place when they were made transcend the form of cinema itself and they almost transmute or transform into some other form some other material that is part of your mind and your body and your memories and your own personal mythology and the way that you think of yourself and the way you the way you relate to life the way you think about life and you don't come across those films often i'm very lucky to have as many as i do and under the sand affected me in that way and it has deeply moved me and i watched it a few months ago in 2018 and this was the kind of film that I knew that I would watch this film one day it's been on my radar for years now I knew I knew that it would haunt me before I even saw it and it's just this kind of film that has called to me for years and years but it's not an easy film to track down it's as I record this it's not available to stream you may find it in other ways but it's not on any kind of official platform streaming unfortunately so it's not an easy film to get a hold of but it recently was streaming on movie and I had the chance to finally watch it and as soon as I saw that it was available I knew I had to see it I knew that this was the kind of film that I had to experience and then of course as soon as I watched it I knew that I had to talk about it on the podcast because that's what this podcast is to me. It's this very intimate space for me to talk about my own experiences, my own psychology, my own deeply personal relationship to certain films and the way that they affect me, the way that they affect my life and sometimes change my life. This is a difficult film. This is not the kind of film that you put on on a Friday night to have fun. (laughs) I mean, this podcast in general is not entertaining and it's not light and uplifting. And I would say that sometimes that bothers me that I do worry about it at times, but I try not to. I try to just think of it as I'm going to talk about the films that move me and that matter to me. And they're going to be vehicles for me to talk about larger issues like grief and loss and mental illness. Sometimes I do worry that I talk too much about suffering, that I talk too much about my pain. But I think I think in a way these these things are taboo that in modern life even though there is more of a conversation about mental illness there is more of a conversation about oh we should be able to share our feelings and we should be able to be open about it I still think in everyday life for the most part we have to lie and we have to suppress and we have to pretend that we're okay when we're not I need a space to talk about pain Maybe it is sad that this podcast has focused so much on pain, but I think some of us have lives that are painful. Some of us have lives that are filled with a lot of sorrow, 
and a lot of devastation. We didn't ask for that, but it happened to us and we have been traumatized. I know that I have. And art for me, art is a lot of things. And when I say art, I mean it as this umbrella term for films and books and and cinema and music. Art for me operates on many different levels. Art at times can remind me of the beauty of life. When I'm reading an Emily Dickinson poem or a Walt Whitman poem, that is a reminder of, of the beauty of life. When I'm listening to pop music, which I love, I'm obsessed with pop music, <laughs> that is an, a reminder of the the beauty of life as well, that life can be fun and that there is happiness because pop music can be that sort of dopamine rush in your brain. But then there are other kinds of art, and I would say it's more with cinema and literature for me, that for me is about pain that I am attracted to films and books that explore human suffering and the human condition and that explore the things that crush us in life, the things that make us come undone and unravel and shatter us. To that end, I'm often attracted to literature that's about the Holocaust or genocide or painful experiences, (laughs) um... And it's the same with cinema sometimes that I can, I'm attracted to very existential, serious, anguished sort of cinema. You know, think about my episodes that I did about Ingmar Bergman. He was somebody that explored pain or films that are about sorrow or loneliness because those are the experiences that I have in my life. So I watch films like Under the Sand because loss is one of the worst horrors of life. It is devastating to lose a person we love and know, for them to suddenly just not be there anymore. And in a way, I think all deaths are a kind of incomprehensible disappearance. There is the vanishing of the body into ash or earth. There is no more voice, no more scent or soul. And how do we bear it? I have turned to art to try to understand how to bear it. Because when I was 16, my life was completely destroyed by the death of my father. And he was only 45 years old. And it was sudden and inexplicable. And as a 16-year-old girl who was already struggling with depression and anxiety, was already alone in the world, was already struggling with life in general. It was almost like this thing that completely broke me. It's sad when you're so young and something so devastating and traumatic happens to you. And I think some people come through it. Maybe they have lots of support and They just have a different constitution, a different kind of personality, perhaps. And they're able to get through it and they're able to flourish and to be okay. And then there's me, and I guess there's other people like me, who go through something that traumatic and are completely obliterated by it. You don't know what to do. It's And I think it's gotten harder as the years have gone by. And so I wanted to talk about Under the Sand because this film means something to me and to my experience in the world. And I don't feel like my experience gets talked about very much in art or literature or, or films. And so when I find 
art that represents this kind of grief and loss, this kind of struggle with the death of a, of a person that means everything. I am drawn to it and I have to talk about it. And I've been struggling with my grief lately. It's been 12 and a half years since my father died. I've thought about lately how there may come a time when I've lived longer without him than I did with him because I was 16 when he died. I've also been thinking about how I'm only 15 years away from the age at which he died. I'm 29. I'm almost 30. I mean, it's hard to believe in a, you know, really like six or seven months, I will be 30 years old. And I'm only 15 years away from the age at which he died because he was 45. And I think about what he was doing when he was my age. When he was my age, he had me. He had a daughter and a wife. And his life was so different than my life is. I don't have a spouse. I'm not married. I don't have a child. (laughs) I don't have like some great career or great successful life. For the past 12 and a half years, I've just been crawling. (laughs) And I feel so ashamed of it. I feel so ashamed that I'm not this successful, well-adjusted, flourishing human being that's contributing great things to the world. You know, instead I am grief-stricken and having anxiety attacks and agoraphobic and having really deep, frightening periods of depression that terrify me. And so much of my life right now is a product of his death. It created this life that I don't know how to live in, that I don't know how to live in the world with him being gone. I don't know. Because to see, to see what happened to him, to be 16 years old and stand in front of your father's casket is unthinkable, even to me. And I lived it. I can't even comprehend it. And I lived through it. So I understand women like the one in Under the Sand. I understand Marie Drion. I understand that inability to process a death and a loss, to be completely shattered by it, and really to be mutilated by grief. So I just wanted to talk a minute about my personal connection to the film and why it is so intense for me. And as you can tell, I'm crying because I tend to cry in these episodes. But now I want to talk about the film. Charlotte Rampling is a really fascinating actress, and I actually did quite a bit of research in preparing for this episode. I watched a couple of really great documentaries about her, and she has really quickly become one of the most fascinating people to me, one of the most fascinating actresses. She's had a controversial career. She's probably best known for The Night Porter, which came out in 1974, directed by Liliana Cavani. And it was very controversial and scandalous when it came out because it's about, it's set during the Holocaust or or the aftermath of the Holocaust. And it's about a concentration camp survivor who has this S&M relationship with a Nazi officer. Rampling was quite young when she did the film. She was in her late 20s, around my age. I think she was 27. And she said at the time she didn't fully comprehend what it was about, you know, that it was dealing with the Holocaust and, and atrocity and things like that. And that obviously as she's gotten older, 
she's understood it more deeply, but she's very proud of that role, even though a lot of American critics did not like it. I've seen the film. I saw it years ago when I was just starting to get interested in art house cinema around 2011, 2012. I watched a lot of the Criterion collection and that was one of the films and I'm interested in Holocaust films and in Holocaust history and so obviously it attracted me. I did not like the film. I will be honest. I don't really like things that appropriate the Holocaust (laughs) Um, or sort of trivialize it. I, I don't know if I watched it now if my opinion would change. All I can tell you is that at the time when I saw it in my early 20s in my early journey into art house, watching very different films than I was ever used to watching. I didn't like, I was disturbed by it. And I think I was really unsettled and turned off by it, just from my memory. I don't think I fully understood it or liked it. (laughs) But I do love Charlotte Rampling. A lot of people have noticed, and I've noticed as well, that I think her career has gotten richer and more complex as she's gotten older. Because she started in the 1960s. She was this gorgeous, you know, drop-dead gorgeous woman. And she was beautiful, you know, throughout much of her youth and, and just a stunning woman. And I'm sure in many ways she felt defined by that. And as she's gotten older, in her later years, that's when she's done some of her most powerful films like Ozone's Under the Sand and also his film Swimming Pool. I'm actually a big fan of Francois Ozone and I love Swimming Pool. I want to rewatch it actually and obviously I love Under the Sand and I've also seen Jeanne and Jolie. I liked that a lot. So I've seen quite a few of Ozone's films and I also think she did a really great job in Andrew Hayes' 45 years which came out in 2015 and she was nominated for an Oscar. So she's done some of her most fascinating work as she's been older and I just think that's interesting because for so many actresses it seems like the well runs dry when it comes to roles. You know once you hit 40 or 50 you're not getting the kind of material that you once did. She is a prolific actress. If you go and look at all the stuff she's been in just in the last few years. She's been in a lot of stuff. <laughs> she works a lot and all of her roles are so varied. But Under the Sand is very, um, very interesting. 45 years, swimming pool. She's she's done a lot of interesting work in her later years. And it's just unusual, I would say. I wanted to talk a bit about Ozone and Rampling. I watched this really great documentary called Charlotte Rampling, The Look. And it came out in 2011. And it's this really unconventional documentary about rampling. It it could have easily just been, you know, people sitting and talking about her and and her career. And instead, it, it features rampling, talking to different poets and photographers that she's worked with and that she's known. One of the photographers is Peter Lindbergh. One of the writers is Paul Alster. Each, and there's like different sections of the film. Like she talks about death. She talks about aging. She talks about taboos. She just is so open and honest and wise and intelligent in the documentary. There's so much that she said in it that I will be referring to throughout this review because they are things that I'm still thinking about and pondering very deeply. 
And so in the look, she talks about how with this film, Under the Sand, that Ozone was actually inspired by a real life event that he witnessed when he was 11 years old. That he had gone to the beach and he saw this couple that seemed very happy together. And he saw this man go into the sea, I guess go swimming, and not come out. And he watched this man's wife become very frantic and searching for this man. And so obviously this left an impression on Ozom. This is what Charlotte Rampling says in the documentary. And in another documentary, I told you I did some research, um, but it was actually really inspiring to watch these documentaries. I don't know. I just find Rampling endlessly fascinating. And she just she isn't your average actor or actress like she actually feels things she actually has things to say she actually has opinions and really deep thoughts about things and it just resonated with me but in this documentary called discovering charlotte rampling it's directed by jack bond and really it's like this it's this hour-long documentary of jack bond just hanging out with Charlotte Rampling in Paris. That's what it is. They walk around, they talk about different things. It's very loose. And it was filmed in 2009. That's when he talked to her. And so in the documentary, Rampling talks a bit about Ozone. And she says that they just sort of wandered into each other's lives. She said that she had followed his work and that he wanted to meet her. And she actually said that she would do a film with him without even having a script. That's how much she thought of him. And so it's just the two of them just sort of came into each other's lives in that way. And they collaborated on some exceptional films, including, you know, Swimming Pool. So now I want to talk about the film, obviously. This is a mysterious film. And I mentioned Jonathan Glazer's birth And I mentioned Antonioni's La Ventura, and I would sort of group these together. But in general, I'm very interested in films about disappearances. I actually have started to make a list of them when I come across them, actually. And it includes films like La Ventura and Picnic at Hanging Rock, for instance, and Bunny Lake is Missing. That's another one that's about a disappearance and a film called The Vanishing not the American remake, the original. And so it's it's these films about people who disappear and about how frightening that is and how the people left behind try to cope with it. And so Under the Sand is obviously part of that. There's not a ton of films about the subject, but they do interest me because I think that, and, and Charlotte talks about this as well in one of the documentaries, how a disappearance is very different from a death. That with a death, you have the body and you have some kind of concrete answer about what happened to them. But with a vanishing or a disappearance, it is very different. Throughout my life, I've been very interested in true crime shows about people who vanish. There are shows about it. There's one on the Investigation Discovery Channel called Disappeared. And when I was younger, I was obsessed with the television show Unsolved Mysteries. And every and a lot of the of what they talked about on that show were people who were missing. And family members would go on there and try to get tips and try to get information about family members that were missing and had vanished. And to me, it's just always been the most haunting thing. Like, I think it's one of the worst things that a person can go through. Not just to lose somebody, but to not have the body. To not know what happened to them at all. 
it just feels profoundly painful to me. Like I, I can't even imagine it. You think of these parents whose children have been kidnapped and have been missing and there's whole databases online that are dedicated to people who have who have disappeared um you know doing portraits of them and age progression of what they would look like 10 20 years later for the person that this happens to it is constant and never ending and under the sand is a bit different at first it's a disappearance and in the latter part of the film a body is found in the sea and dental records and genetic testing tell us that it is Jean. It, it changes a bit, but for for a good chunk of the film, he's vanished. He's disappeared. And she doesn't know what's happened to him. It's, it's a very just painful thing of not having the body. Charlotte Rampling has a bit of experience, at least with death, with, uh, with losing people, because her sister actually committed suicide. Charlotte was only 20. I think this happened in the 1960s. And her sister actually committed suicide. Charlotte does not talk about it often. She doesn't go into a lot of detail in interviews or anything. But it's obviously something that has affected her. How could it not? The The whole premise of this film is fascinating. That Marie Drion and Jean Drion, this elderly or older married couple, going on vacation to the sea, going to the beach, her reading her book, or really she's sunbathing and she sort of falls asleep for a while. And then she literally wakes up to a nightmare. And and the way that scene plays out where at first she's like, oh, I'm going to read my book and I'm sure Jean will show up at some point. And then the, the mounting dread of the film, like I always feel like these are actually horror films that I'm not interested in your more like conventional horror films personally like to me this is horror the the disappearance of someone the complete vanishing of someone you know the disintegration that happens as a result to me this is true horror and what is horrific in life and these are things that can actually happen that actually do happen every single day on this planet it's just this this premise that that is so simple but so, I think, masterfully executed by Ozon. And what's very interesting also about Ozon is how every single one of his films are very different from each other. Like, he's never made another film like Under the Sand. It's very unique, and but each of his films are so different. And he plays with different genres. But I, I think he's quite masterful in Under the Sand of building that dread, of, of taking... This ordinary couple, this ordinary experience of going on vacation and turning it into something nightmarish and something very horrific. And then also what he does so well in the film and that I want to go into a lot of depth about is how he centers a woman's emotional life and Charlotte Rampling's performance as that woman. But the whole film is about this one woman and about Marie and about her trying to cope with the aftermath of Jean's disappearance. And how really she cannot cope with it. That she is just completely undone and unraveled by it in a lot of ways. Francois Ozon did an interview in 2014 with the website The Talks. And they asked him, quote, When did you realize that you prefer to tell stories from a woman's perspective? 
unquote. And he answered, quote, I discovered that when I did Under the Sand with Charlotte Rampling. I realized filming a face and projecting many things on a face, it is possible to think about so many things. Fassbender said that what he liked about Douglas Sirk's work was the fact he had the feeling to see for the first time women thinking on the screen. Usually women just have to look pretty in movies, and I like to try to show the psyche or the interior of a woman or a little girl. Unquote. And I think this is why I'm attracted to Ozone's work because obviously I am a woman and I'm interested in women's subjectivity, their interior lives, their emotional lives, their experiences in the world. And that is that is most of the films that I watch. It's most of the films that I've covered on her head and films. Even if the film is directed by a man, most of the films that I talk about center women and center their experiences. And this is one of those. And I am attracted to directors who are interested in women's lives. I wouldn't say I'm very attracted to a Steven Spielberg personally. And to different male directors who tend to make films predominantly about other men. As much as I love Martin Scorsese as like a person and as a cinephile, I wouldn't say that I'm attracted to his films very much. He has a few films that have been about women, but I mean, the majority of them tend to be about men. So I'm always attracted to directors who are looking at women and their lives. And that is what is partly so powerful about Under the Sand is that I don't know if it would have been as interesting to me if Marie had disappeared and it had been about Jean trying to deal with it. That it's about this woman grieving or this woman really, really this is a film about grief delayed, grief deferred, grief denied. A woman who cannot grieve, who cannot believe that her beloved is dead. And it's very different in that way from my own experience. I feel like my life is sort of soaked in grief too much. I'm at the point where I can't move on. I can't let it go. But I do relate to Marie in that way that she can't either. She can't let go of Jean. She can't do it. And maybe maybe it's grief. Maybe it isn't. But to, to me, I saw her as a woman who can't grieve because the only way that you can grieve is to accept that someone has died, to accept that they are gone. And she can't do that. She cannot accept that Jean has died. Even when they show her the body later on, and I'll go into more depth about that that final scene, she still just cannot accept this. So I, I'm not sure if it is a film about grief or not. I think it's certainly about loss and death, but I don't know if Marie can grieve. I don't know if that's what she's doing because she can't accept that Jean is dead at all. And so it's this sort of woman who is in denial. She can't believe that her husband is dead. And it's really how that death ruptures her life. How it blows this hole in her world. In her emotional world. And Charlotte just talks beautifully about emotional fragility. And in that film, Charlotte Rampling the Look... She has this section of the the film that's called Demons, and it's about what haunts us. That's what she says. She says that demons are the things that haunt us. And she says something in this segment that has just been gnawing at me and that has stayed with me ever since I watched it. And so I want to talk about it and quote it. And she says, quote, 
Demons is a feeling that comes into your life that you're taken over by powers, that you feel that you are trapped in an emotional world that is threatening. What makes it all so frightening is because it's all invisible, invisible powers within you, which is yourself, because it's only your emotional world that's doing it. And what connects you with the outer world, the world that we have to live in and function in, there's nothing specific about it. That's what's so demonic about demons that you can have inside you. It's a state of heightened sensitivity. It's a state where your feeling world is shattered, feels like it's fragmented into thousands of pieces. Unquote. I, she articulated something there that is something that I myself struggle with, which is my interior reality my interior world, and then my existence in the material reality, in everyday life, in the world outside of me, and the demands that it makes, you know, to work, to have a job, to bring in a paycheck, to pay your rent, to get groceries, to go to the post office, to do all these things that modern life and everyday life demands of you. It demands that you be able to function, that you be normal and okay. There is this clash between that outer world and my own inner world of I'm expected to function I'm expected to be okay. I'm expected to make sense of things and to go on and to continue and to pretend like I'm happy and that I'm okay and that I love life, you know, and I don't, I don't feel any kind of connection to life. I don't feel any kind of purpose in my life. I don't feel any kind of meaning in my life. I don't feel any kind of sense. Like I can't make sense of anything. And that's a product of my father's death that I was completely, like she said, fragmented into thousands of pieces. And yet I'm expected to live as though I am a whole functioning coping person. And I am not. I'm not. Inside I am screaming. Inside I am wounded. I think a lot of us are, and I think a lot of what happens in this world, like drug use and alcoholism, comes from that interior emotional world being at odds and clashing with the demands of the outside world that we can't function, we can't cope, because we've been traumatized and we've been given no ways to deal with it, because life itself is frightening and meaningless. And people die and we don't know where they are and we don't know what happens to them. And honestly, no amount of therapy is going to change that, is it? You know, I mean, I'm not saying therapy can't be helpful, but there are things that therapy cannot answer. The, there are very deeply spiritual, I don't even like to use the word spiritual, but I'm I'm talking more in terms of the mystery of life, the unknowable things of life. And death is one of them. That my father is dead and I don't know where he is and I don't know what has happened to him and I can't understand what has happened. That he is buried in the earth and doesn't exist anymore. When I saw him every day for 16 years, my body and mind can't process it. That this was one of the few people who has ever loved me, who has ever cared about me. I don't have a lot of friends and family who care about me. 
I am an extremely lonely person. And it has started to affect me in really terrible ways lately. Just how alone I feel and how scared it makes me. And every time I've tried to reach out to people or I've tried to establish some kind of connection to people, I've only been hurt and rejected. That's what's happened. So I'm so alone and so isolated in my own emotional, my emotional pain and grief and suffering. And it's not visible. It's only inside of me. And it's the same with Marie, is that all of this is going on inside of her, that she thinks Jean is still alive, that she speaks about him as though he is still alive. It reminded me of Joan Didion's very famous memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking. And the reason she titled it that is because after her husband died, she believed he was still alive. She believed that he was going to walk back through the door and that he would be with her again. And she believed that for a long time. And it took her a while to process his death, to accept his death. And I see Marie in a similar way, that inside there is this reality that she lives. And in that reality, Jean is still alive and he has dinner with her and they talk in bed And everything is as it was before they went to the beach that day. And how, and how terrible to always think about if you just hadn't gone to the beach, you know, that, that one moment where you wish you could change something that you did. So it's almost like because she can't cope with what's happened, her mind goes into this sort of this, it it gets frozen maybe in the life before his disappearance and in her own mind he's still alive. And I saw that sort of frailty or that fragility that Rampling's talking about, that clash between the inner and the outer, which I think is probably one of the central things of my own life, that I've always had this very rich and deep inner life and inner world that I've never been able to express, that I've never been able to share. And it's always been at odds with the world around me. And I've just always struggled to be in the world I don't know if some of you, if some of you listening will be able to understand what I'm saying, but it's how I feel about grief too, that in our culture, we have a lot of platitudes about it, like, oh, move on and let it go. And, and you have to continue living. And, but that doesn't, that doesn't express or take into account my lived experience of every moment of the day being without this person who was really essential to my own life. This wasn't just my father. He was like my best friend. He was a person who loved me and gave me love. And I loved him. And I talked to him and shared my dreams and my emotions. And he was a source of support and love for me. As an atheist, I don't have any kind of comfort or peace over his death. Like I said, there are things that cannot be answered, that are unknowable, and death is one of them, that nobody can come and say, well, this is where your dad is, and you'll see him again. There's no guarantee of that at all, and so I have to live that grief every single moment of every single day, and it never stops it never stops. So people can say these platitudes and these cliches, but they're not in my mind. They don't have my memories. They don't have my trauma. And, and it's the same with every human being on this planet. 
people don't understand what you're going through inside of your own brain and your own experience inside your body and mind. It's inadequate. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to say is that the way we talk about grief, the way we treat people who are grieving, I think, is inadequate. But there's this scene after she's gotten the phone call that his that his body may have possibly been found. The police call her and tell her that they found a body in a fishing net in the sea. She's very startled by this news of getting this phone call because she believes Jean is alive. She she doesn't know how to handle it. She goes to this fast food restaurant and everyone around her is laughing and just going about their lives, you know, their everyday normal lives. But she's separate from it and she's struggling with what's going on inside of her. And of course, Charlotte plays it brilliantly and you can feel her frailty. And this is really a scene where Marie's inner world, her inner emotional world that is in pieces is really clashing with the real world around her. Her demons and what's haunting her are crashing against the outside world. That's what Rampling was sort of talking about. You know, she's she has this emotional experience of Jean that he's still alive. But then she also has the world around her, her friends telling her that he's dead and she should date and she should move on. She's constantly in conflict, I think, in that way. And she talked, Charlotte talks more about Under the Sand in that documentary, Discovering Charlotte Rampling with Jack Bond. She talks about how it's this very fragile story about absence. And she doesn't want to talk about her and Ozone's theories about the husband's disappearance. Um, she doesn't want to go into that. I think each person who comes to the film has different ideas because like I said, the first chunk of the film, you're wondering, well, there's three possibilities as the film goes on before the body is found. There's he drowned, there's suicide, and then there's that he just left her. Those are the three possibilities for a while. And then once the body is discovered, it becomes, did he purposely kill himself? Did he go and drown himself or was it accidental and was he pulled by the current or something like that? But in the, in this documentary, Rampling um, says that when someone vanishes from your life and you don't know where they are, she says that you're quote, in an immaterial world, you have nothing. There's no touch. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it that Marie as long as Jean is has vanished, she's in this immaterial world, almost. She's in this very abstract world because there's no body, there's no answer, there's no closure, if closure can ever exist with death. But at least with a body, there is something. When people just vanish off the face of the earth, there is nothing. And I would imagine that that kind of experience makes the world seem so massive that you look around and realize all the places they could be and you see all these people and you can't find the one person that you want to find. She says that what happens is, quote, an explosion into space. That's the way Rampling puts it, that experience of a disappearance. And she also says that it's very important to see the dead, to see the dead body so that it's, quote, not an abstract thought, unquote. Marie is really trapped in the immaterial and she's trapped in abstraction. She's trapped in her own mind, I think. 
and she's living in this sort of parallel world (laughs) where Jean to her is alive because there's nothing to prove that he isn't alive. It is a possibility that he's alive, but she's obviously hallucinating and seeing his ghost and seeing him. That's what the film shows us. And I really want to linger a moment on Charlotte's performance, obviously, and how I can't imagine another actress playing this role. Like, what she brings to it, I I don't even know how to describe Rampling as an actress. Like, if she's in something, I definitely want to watch it because I think that she brings a gravity to her roles. I think she brings an intelligence and I think she brings an emotion. It's very strange to me that for a lot of her career, she's been described as sort of cold and icy. I don't see her that way at all. I see a woman who's very deeply in touch with her emotions and there are some very emotional scenes in this film, especially at the end. But in Discovering Charlotte, Rampling Jack Bond makes this excellent point where he says that Under the Sand is really tailored around Charlotte, that she is completely centered in the film, um, that that role and the film just seems to have been built around her. And I really hadn't thought about that. And Charlotte definitely agrees. And she compares her relationship with Ozone to the relationship between Antonioni and Vidi. And Monica Vitti, who was in several of Antonioni's greatest films, in my opinion. La Ventura, Red Desert, La Noche, La Clise. La Ventura is my favorite. It's one of my all-time favorite films. I have an episode about it. And until she said that, I didn't make the connection with La Ventura. La Ventura is about a disappearance. It's about these people who go to this island um, off the coast of Italy, I guess. A woman disappears and we never know in the film what happens to her. Did she kill herself? Did she leave the island? Did she fall? And it was some kind of accidental death. And so I think Under the Sand is perhaps in conversation a bit with La Ventura, the disappearance, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that. And Rampling even says that when she saw La Ventura, that was a big revelation to her. And she said that seeing that film, she realized that that was really the kind of films that she wanted to be part of. That's the kind of work that she wanted to make. And she said that Ozone offered her complete freedom in expressing herself, especially in Under the Sand. And I think it shows in her in her performance. I really do. And I also love how she talks about French cinema. She says something really fascinating to me. She said that French cinema, she lives in France. She lives in Paris, actually. And she's lived in France for a long time. Her father was in the military. And when she was young, maybe nine or 10, they actually moved to France. And she started to learn French. And she knows about the French culture. And obviously, later in her career, she started to be in more European films, European art house films, Italian films, French films. But she says that she loves French cinema because it's not about entertaining people. It's about telling stories about people's lives. She says that with cinema, she doesn't want to be entertained. She wants her thoughts and feelings to be provoked. And I loved that. I thought that was such a profound way of putting why I think I also like French cinema is that it's not about a formula. I mean, I guess there are some French films that are formulaic or they have these genres, but a lot of the French films that I watch 
whether they're contemporary or classic. I agree with that, that it's not about this formula or about entertaining you or having a blockbuster. That's not what France is known for. That's not what French cinema is known for is the blockbusters or that big action films. They're about everyday people. They're about telling people stories and they do provoke thoughts and feelings, I find. And it's why I love French cinema so much. And um, she just articulated that in a beautiful way. And I think Under the Sand is really that kind of film of, of just telling this woman's story and looking at her emotional life, her inner world that is so at odds with the outside world she inhabits and that she has to function in and navigate. Marie has really created this other world for herself, this alternative world. But for me, her believing he's still alive feels completely normal to me. You know, I still think about my father all the time. I even talk to him inside of my head sometimes. I really do. And I, I, I was like, should I share that? But I'm going to share it. Like I talk to my dad in my head, you know, and I'll just say things like, I miss you. You know, I'll just say things like that or yeah, I mean, that's mainly what I say. Just in my head, I just say, I miss you. I wish you were here. You know, sometimes I'll just say daddy, you know, in my head because I don't have anybody to call daddy. I don't have anybody to call my father anymore because he's gone. And the absence is just so immense in my life. And I mean, I used to even buy like a Father's Day card. I used to do that. I used to go and buy a Father's Day card for him. And it's just so sad to share that, but it's true. But I don't do it anymore. But I just, I just missed having a father. I just missed going and buying a card. And so I would do it and I would pretend that I had a dad. It's like this part of me was just completely, just completely stolen. You get one dad and you get one mom they're irreplaceable and he's just completely irreplaceable to me and at times I still and I used to as well want to believe that he was still alive I I I used to wish that I could pretend that he was alive that I could just live in this alternative world where I could think that he was still here you know I could just think oh well he's away and he's gonna come back and everything's gonna be okay again you know maybe that's the 16 year old like child in me because the reality is too unbearable most of the time and I think it's the same with Marie that it's easier for her to just pretend like Jean is alive and to just live in that world rather than accept that this man that she was married to for 25 years is gone without a trace and she doesn't know what happened to him so she's really inhabiting these two worlds there's the world where Jean is alive but then there's also the other one where she's free to date like to me that was very contradictory to me and that she seems to be um not fully present completely in 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 each world that on the one hand she believes Jean is alive but on the other hand she does date there's this guy named Vincent in the film and it's really her friends setting her up they invite her to this dinner the Vincent is there and he takes her home and things like that and it's quite a few months after Jean's disappearance and um, they obviously want her to move on and let go and she's not able to do that. But the open-endedness of Jean's death or disappearance 
really leaves Marie in limbo. And she's in this sort of purgatory, I would say. She's in this zone between life and death. Where on a daily basis, very contradictory things are happening in her life. Where she's talking to Jean. She's buying ties for him when she goes clothes shopping. She talks about him in the present tense to her friends who look baffled and horrified when she is talking at dinner or whatever. And she says, my husband, as though he is at home waiting for her. She's just living in in sort of this limbo and also inhabiting two very contradictory worlds. One where her husband is alive and one where she's with Vincent. So I think a part of her knows Jean isn't alive, right? Because if she really believed he was alive, then wouldn't she think that she was cheating with Vincent? Wouldn't that feel wrong to her? So there's all these different parts of her that are, that are like warring with each other. They're, they're in constant conflict, I think. And there's this fascinating love scene that I want to talk about because I was, I don't know if I noticed it or or thought about it as much the first time I watched the film because I rewatched it for this episode. And there's this love scene where Marie is basically masturbating and she's fantasizing about Vincent and Jean touching her at the same time that she's lying on the bed and Vincent and Jean's hands are all over her body, all over her face. And she's touching herself as she thinks about this. And it's like this phantom threesome. It's further proof of the way that Jean's ghost just haunts everything. And I would think that being with another man for Marie does feel like cheating. And I think that she doesn't know how to reconcile it. And so she fantasizes about both men touching her. I think she desires to bring these two contrasting and conflicting parts of herself. The She is both Jean's wife and Jean's widow. She wants to bring them together, synthesize them in some way to some kind of closure or wholeness. Uh, that's what I think. And I think her erotic desire is maybe an attempt to do that, to make peace with these two warring, irreconcilable parts of her. You know, she longs for Jean, but she also wants Vincent. She wants both of them. She wants her husband, who's dead, and then she wants this new lover because she wants to live. She she is not dead. She wants to keep living, but she's so shattered by what's happened. She's so unable to cope and accept that Jean is gone that she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to do. She's trapped. She's suspended. And I think the film does a really good job of showing that and of creating scenes where that's made visible. And I think in that love scene, when their hands are all over her and she's fantasizing about that, it's her desire to to bring those two parts of herself together in some way, to make sense of it. I don't think she can make sense of it. She just can't. Like, with a disappearance like that, with a death like that, you're never going to make sense of it. It's just not possible. There is no sense to be made. So I think we find in life that human beings often go through experiences where there is no precedent for it. There is no way to cope with it because the human mind, the human body 
wasn't built to cope with it. Or maybe some of our minds and bodies are not built to cope with it. Somebody like me, somebody like Marie, where other people can cope, other people can get through it, and then other people can't. And so I think Marie explores some of that through her erotic desire and through her fantasies. And I also want to talk about Marie. Um, She is an English professor in the film. And I thought there was an interesting touch in the film with her teaching Virginia Woolf's book, The Waves, in her class as all this is happening or, or in the months after Jean's disappearance. And it feels it's very apt. It's very poetic in a way because Jean died in the sea. He went into the the waves, right? And waves play a part in the film. When they're at the beach, you see the waves. At the very end of the film, when Marie goes back to the beach, you see the waves. It's a beautiful book. The Waves is probably my favorite book by Virginia Woolf. I haven't read it in years. I really need to reread it. I love that and Mrs. Dalloway. It's just this gorgeous book. It's, it's, constantly quotable. There's so many gorgeous passages in the book. But water is also very interesting because, you know, Jean dies in water. The waves is obviously, the ocean is a device in the book. Um, And also Wolf, Virginia Wolf killed herself in water. She drowned herself by putting rocks in her pockets. And it's, it's a sad death because Virginia Woolf could swim. She knew how to swim. And so she was basically forcing herself to drown. Woolf struggled with depression, just as Jean did. We learn later in the film that Jean was on antidepressants and that he was struggling with depression. And that makes the possibility of suicide even more real. And I wonder, perhaps the waves is put into this movie as a clue to Jean's death. Of course, we'll never know. But there are aspects of it that make you wonder, are we supposed to think that it was a suicide? Marie says that Wolf's own death, own suicide by drowning, was a beautiful death. And I thought that was strange of her to say. I I don't know why, because, you know, here is her husband who has disappeared in the sea. And she's saying that dying by drowning is a beautiful death. I don't know quite what to make of that. I went online and I wanted to look at some quotes from The Waves and just see if there was anything that may be connected to this film. And I came across this one and and I want to read it because I think it's really beautiful. Quote, I need silence and to be alone and to go out and to save one hour to consider what has happened to my world, what death has done to my world. Unquote. And I thought that is a perfect way to, to describe this film is that I really think this is a film about what death does to one woman's world, to Marie's world. And so I wanted to touch on the book for a moment because it it is part of the of the film. It's not a huge part of it. I I would imagine those scenes probably could have been cut, but it, Ozone left them in, and so I think we need to consider them. I want to go back to Jean's depression because once his body is found, and it it seems to be him. The genetic testing connects to his mother. The dental records are similar or the same. He's wearing the watch and the shorts that Marie says that he was wearing when he disappeared. The mystery shifts from, well, could he have just left her? That comes off the table. He obviously did not leave her. It becomes, did he kill himself or was it an accidental drowning? Even though Marie gets the body, 
she still doesn't have a definitive answer about what happened to him and why he died. So there's still a lack of closure involved. She'll never know. And I think his depression and the antidepressants that he was secretly taking, um, it appears he was not telling her about that. It brings up the issue of perhaps Marie didn't know Jean the way that she thought she did. She goes to see Jean's mother, Suzanne. Suzanne says that she knew that Jean was on antidepressants, that he told her, but he didn't tell Marie. And so there are these fissures, these fractures in the image of this marriage of Marie and Jean. And it reminds us that even in close marriages, long marriages of over two decades, the way Marie and Jean were together. There are secrets, there are lies, there are things that are kept from each other. That's also a big theme in another film that Rampling recently did in 2015 called 45 Years. That's also a film that that explores, do we ever really know another person, even if we're married to them? And so Jean keeping his depression secret makes us wonder, did Marie know him? quite as well as she thought she did. That's something that also comes up in Jonathan Glazer's film Birth, where the main character played by Nicole Kidman, Anna, where things come out about her dead husband that she didn't know about. And so in some ways in that film, Anna is holding on to an illusion in some ways. I don't think it's quite as profound for Marie. It's not quite as intense but this is something that he did keep from her and I would think that that feels a bit like a betrayal for Marie that this is someone she lived with all these years and that she loved and he didn't feel comfortable telling her that but men probably struggle with a lot of shame when it comes to mental illness especially depression you know people in general who have mental illness feel that shame and that stigma and men do as well that they'll be seen as weak or not not strong um So her love for Jean, is she remembering the reality of their marriage or is she remembering sort of this idealized image of who they were, sort of this mirage? When we learn about that, it makes, I think it does make us wonder of, well, what kind of marriage did they really have? Were they as close as Marie thought that they were? Did he, did he feel as comfortable with her as she may be felt with him. But it's hard to say, like at the beginning of the film, they seem very comfortable in one another's presence. They just seem like this very ordinary couple. We see them go to the vacation home and she fixes dinner and they sit and they eat and they talk and they're just your average couple. And some people like to keep things private and maybe he just wanted to keep that to himself, that he was struggling with depression. So... It's just, it's an interesting aspect of the film, those those fissures that are in the marriage that maybe Marie has a hard time dealing with. So I want to talk finally about the the final few scenes of the film because I think that they're very powerful and I think they raise questions, like really big questions about what does it mean to let go, to move on? Is that even possible? Will this woman ever be able to grieve? Will this woman ever escape this world that she has fabricated in which her her dead husband is still alive? Will she ever escape it? Will she ever be free of the the lie that she's living, the fake world that she's created? 
um, the uh, this imaginary world she's created in which Jean is still alive and they're going to be together again. And yet I feel so much sympathy for Murray for creating that world. I understand wanting to create that world, wanting to live in that world. You know, I often think about the past. I'm a very nostalgic person. And I just often wish that, I guess in my brain or something, I could just forever live in the past in my own mind. That I never had to live in the present. That I never had to accept the things that have happened to me. That I could just be a little girl again. I could be 10 or 11 again. I could go back in those memories and just live them for the rest of my life. But you can't do that. It's not possible. But I think this film is exploring, well, what if you tried to? What if you tried to create this imaginary world that a dead person was still alive and you tried to continue that imaginary existence in a way? And what would that look like? And how would that go? So she finally goes back to the morgue and there's this very interesting mirror of the beginning and the end of the film like throughout the film there are things that mirror each other or there are like echoes throughout the film like at the beginning of the film her and Jean um go to the vacation house and she's fixing pasta she puts spaghetti noodles in this pot and then there's this scene later on in the film where she's with Vincent and she's putting spaghetti noodles in the pot to make them dinner and the night that Vincent sleeps over at her apartment for the first time it shows her in front of the mirror like cleaning her face and they had shown a scene like that at the very beginning when she was at the vacation home with Jean so throughout the film there are these these images that repeat these scenes that repeat and so the beginning of the film the the ending of the film mirrors the beginning but what has happened is that instead of Instead of Marie being with Jean, Marie is alone. She has to go back to the vacation house. She has to go back to the town where Jean went missing so that she can go to the morgue and talk to the police. And so we see her drive there just like we saw her drive with Jean. We see her go to the house and, you know, be in the house and do things just like she was with Jean. And then later on when she goes back to the beach, at the beginning of the film, she had been with her husband at the end, she's alone. And I think it's a stark reminder of what loss really is. What it really does to us is that it is really this diminishment. It is this reduction. You go from, like in my case, three people, my mother, my father, and I, I don't have any siblings. We were three people together. We were a family. We were a unit. We were whole, right? And then he dies and it's me and my mother. It's down to two. That's like the most stark reality of it is that you're reduced in size. That one moment you're a family and the next you're not. And for Marie, it's one minute you are a wife, one minute you are a couple, and then the next you're a widow and you're one person instead of two. And I think the way that these scenes bookend the film, it's very heart-wrenching in that way to see her doing all of these routines all of these things but doing them alone and without Jean so she goes to the morgue and the coroner explains to her the condition of the body that it's putrefied that it is green and swollen it's you can't even identify the body from photographs but they said that the dental records matched and the genetic testing matched that he was wearing blue shorts and had a watch on that she described him wearing and so they're pretty sure that it's him 
And even though she's told that, she insists on seeing the body. And she says that she can handle it. And I think some people would wonder, why would she do this? Why would she put herself through this? But I think Charlotte Rampling's earlier comment is the key to this scene, which is that for so long, Marie has lived in this immaterial, abstract world because she didn't have a body and she didn't know what happened to him. And she needs physical proof. She needs evidence. She doesn't want to take somebody else's word on it that it is Jean, that for all this time, all these months, she's lived without him and hasn't known what happened to him. And so with her own eyes, she needs to see him. She needs to know what happened. She just, she needs that because she has fabricated his still being alive, that he's still there. In her own mind, he's as real as he ever was. He's walking around the apartment. He's watching her have sex with Vincent. He's touching her body. You know, like all these things, he's still incredibly alive to her. And in order for her to kill that fantasy, for her to, I guess, bury it, put it to bed, she needs evidence of a death. And it is probably one of the most harrowing scenes I've ever witnessed. She goes to the morgue and she wants to look at really the cadaver, as they're calling it. Not really calling it a body, it's it's a cadaver. And of course, Ozone does not let us see the body. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Again, this is why I would say this is partly a horror film to some extent. We don't see the body. We don't see the horror of what being in the water for months and months has done to to his flesh and all of that. We only see Marie seeing it. We watch her looking at his body. We experience it through her own revulsion and her own shock. And we also only see her eyes in the scene because she's wearing a surgical mask, which tells you a lot about the state of the body as well. And all we see is that when they open the bag and they show Charlotte Rampling's face like her eyes widen like you can see all of it in her eyes this is also why I think her performance is just stunning she is obviously horrified she starts to breathe very heavy so she thought she could handle it but she can't and so now now she's completely traumatized as well like not only is he dead but she's had to look at him in a way that she'll never not be able to see, to unsee. She will never stop seeing him in that way now. But she needed that confirmation, and yet it is a profoundly traumatic moment for her to see him like that. And they show her his watch, and she starts to laugh, and she says that it wasn't Jean's watch. And so she she refuses to believe that the body is Jean. So think about it. You know, the body being so decayed and decomposed actually works against Marie because if it looked like him, she could look at the body and she could accept it, right? She could absolutely accept it. For for it to not look like him, it's it almost fuels her fantasies. It's almost, now it's almost impossible for her to believe that it's really him. So she can keep believing that he's still alive because it looks nothing like him and she can just tell herself, oh, it's not him. And she finds something about the watch that, oh, that's not his watch. Because now that she's seen the state of the body, there's no way that she can process it. There's no way that she can accept that that's Sean at all. She's not going to accept it, period. 
So whereas I think we thought once she goes to the morgue, oh, she's going to be able to grieve. She's going to be able to, to process this, to accept what has really happened. Really the opposite is true. That she's even more hunkered down in this stance that, no, nah, he's alive. He's still out there. That can't be him. Because it probably didn't even look human. It probably just looked horrific. There's no way that's him. Her mind can't process it. And so then we see her return to the beach. It's the first time she's been back there since everything that's happened. She sits in the sand and she just cries. Again, this is a great example of Charlotte Rampling being a deeply emotional actress. An actress who feels. And I think she showed that in those documentaries that I watched too of... This is a feeling, emotional woman. This is a woman deeply in touch with her emotions. That final scene reminded me a lot of a film called Vive L'Amour. And at the end of that film, it shows an actress just crying for, I don't know how many minutes, but it's a really long extended scene of an actress just crying. And it's one of the most um, unforgettable scenes and one of the most beautiful scenes that I've ever witnessed in cinema. So this scene in Under the Sand reminded me of that as well, of Charlotte Rampling just sitting there for a while and just crying, just coming apart. Just I think there's so much swirling inside of her. Of, Is it Jean? Is it not Jean? How can I accept that he's dead when I think that he's alive, when I want him to be alive? And maybe perhaps she also can't accept that he may have killed himself because what does that mean about their marriage that she didn't know he was in this kind of pain what does it say about their relationship I I just I think she doesn't know what to do I, I don't think anyone would I feel a lot of sympathy for this character of Marie I think that there are parts of us, perhaps, that also can't accept death and can't accept loss. There is this part of me that still will not accept that my father's dead. That just, I cannot accept it. That it, it's so unbearable. It's so painful. It hurts so terribly that I, I, I will, it will never feel normal to me. It will never feel real It will never feel real to me. Sometimes I still can't believe it. I mean, I will have days when I'm just stunned by it, where I think he can't be dead. He can't be. And I do remember how after he died in the early months, I did think, oh, he'll come back through the door. Or I would wish that he would. I would wish like, oh my God. I remember being at school once and I was in the the library I was in the computer lab and I just had the most intense, overwhelming desire for him to just walk in and, and to be alive and to, and for my life to be whole again, for my life to be unshattered and undestroyed and to go back to who I was before and who we were before. And of course you can't, that's not the way life works, but that is the suffering. That is the profound traumatic pain is that it can't be reversed. It can't be changed. That's what we live every day is the finality of it. And that's what I think Marie can't cope with is the finality that he's gone and it's over. And even with the body, she can't accept it. And she, she's sitting there crying on the sand and she sees a man far, farther down the beach. And you can tell that she thinks it's Sean. You can tell in her face that she thinks it's him. And she takes off and she starts running down the beach. And the way she runs, there was something about the way Charlotte Rampling ran in that scene. It was like, it was the saddest, like, it's like this desperate running. Like, I've never seen anything like, like, even when she runs, she's a brilliant actress. She can't let go. 
she can't let go of the delusion that he's alive. She can't. She's not free. She, she's not free of it. She's not able to, to start another part of her life or to go on or anything like that. She is completely trapped in this idea, this fantasy that her husband's still alive and that she's going to be with him again. And we don't know what's going to happen to Marie, really. I mean, she's just, she's just running down the beach. It, it's incredibly heartbreaking and yet so relatable. Like, I get it. I I totally get it. I remember after my father died, like, being in a grocery store one time and smelling a man's perfume or a man's cologne. And I think it smelled like my dad's cologne or something. And I had to hold on to the shelf. I had to hold on to the shelf. It, It was that physically powerful that that was his scent or that was his cologne. I've been out at times and heard songs that he loved you know, by artists that he loved. I just want to weep. Like, I feel like I'm going to completely disintegrate in that moment. So I think at times we're sort of holding ourselves together and then things come along. You know, we think we've made progress, maybe. We think, oh yeah, I'm dealing with it. I'm letting go. I'm moving on. I'm, I'm living with this. I'm making it. And then things will happen that make us realize that we've made no progress at all. I mean, I think maybe when Maria's sitting there crying, maybe she's ready to almost accept Maybe that's what the tears are. Oh, Jean's gone. Jean's dead. Maybe she's on the precipice of accepting it. And then she sees the man farther down the beach and she's, she snaps out of it. And she's like, oh, that must be Jean, you know? And so, so it's over. Yeah. She, she can't, she can't go there and accept that he's really gone and that that's his body and that's what he looks like. And that's the end of everything. That's not a possibility for her. It feels completely normal to me and and understandable in, in her situation. And I know how at times I myself have been able to accept death and to accept that my own father's gone and that he's not coming back and that the, the finality of that is really painful. And I don't, I don't have any answers. I don't have any comfort to offer. (laughs) It's just a deep gnawing, terrible pain, a terrible aching that never goes away for me. I know for some people they're able to deal with it. Maybe they're more spiritual. Maybe they're, I don't know, they're more resilient. (laughs) That's not, that's not me. It's not me. I wish it was, but Marie... I see more of myself in Marie than I see in somebody who is just completely okay with death and completely okay with the loss of somebody they love. I mean, to me, if I don't judge Marie, I I completely understand why she is struggling, why it's so hard for her. I get it. I understand it tremendously. And I'm glad I finally watched this film. I think it has definitely become one of the most personal films in my own life because of how deeply I understand the character and I understand her motivations and I understand a bit of her suffering. Even though our stories and our situations are very different, I do see a lot of myself in Murray. And I think that this this is a really complex 
fascinating exploration of loss. But I don't know, like I said, if I would say it's about grief. I don't know. I don't know if she is grieving. I don't know if she's able to grieve because she's not able to accept that he's actually dead. So it's much more about a woman who cannot cope with with the death of her husband and would really rather live in a reality where he's still alive. And that reality is very understandable to me in every possible way. Loss is one of those things that you really don't get it until you live it. And it's not the same when you lose someone who's maybe a distant relative. Because before my father died, I had lost grandparents. I had lost relatives, but I didn't know that well. You don't understand loss until it is somebody that you deeply love. Until it is a parent that you're close to or a spouse or a lover or a very close friend. That That's when it's different. That's when it's on a completely different level and it's just a completely different experience because when it is one of those people, when it's the distant relative or maybe the grandparent when you're five, there's a distance. There, there's a huge distance and you're just not able to feel it in the same way. But when it's somebody that you've lived with day in, day out for years that you have constructed your identity around, someone who is a source of emotional support in your life, someone that you deeply rely on just to live and to exist it is profoundly devastating to your sense of self, to your mind, to your body. Because think about it, Marie had been with him for 25 years. Her life revolved around him. Her life was constructed around the life that they had created together. She defined herself through her relationship to him. And so for him to vanish, for him to die, it is part of her that goes with him and she's not able to reconstruct herself to reconstruct her life and yes she has sex with Vincent she spends time with Vincent but there is no way that Vincent can replace Jean in any possible way I I I was I really didn't feel like her friends should have been doing that like you really don't need to be forcing someone or, or making someone start dating so early you know that should be be something that someone chooses for themselves like what they want to do with that often in our in different in a lot of cultures there's just not this respect for people who are grieving people who are struggling with loss and trying to understand their emotional world their inner world and and to realize that what you are seeing on the outside is not the reality of this person and that there is this whole universe this whole inner emotional life that is happening. That, you know, Marie looks beautiful throughout the film. Her hair's quaffed. She wears nice clothes. She carries herself with this regal grace and beauty. But inside, this woman is completely crushed and she is mutilated by what's happened. And her friends can't see that. Vincent can't see that. They can't see what is happening inside of her. But the film sees it and the film shows it. And so I appreciate films like this that are trying to convey the inner reality of a character and to convey a state of loss and pain and struggle that I think it's hard for people to comprehend and to understand that because there's so little understanding or respect for what we go through as, as people inside of ourselves and how it's not visible to the outside world. 
I mean, even this podcast, when I do these episodes, none of you know my life. (laughs) I mean, I share things. I don't share everything. I go through a lot of stuff that I don't talk about. I go through a lot of pain that I don't share because there are things inside of me, things that I go through that there is no language for. There's no way to communicate it. There's no way to make you understand it. What would be the point anyways? But I have to live with it every day. And that doesn't come through in one hour or however many hours each episode is. And so I do feel like art is one of the only spaces where we can actually explore and talk about and show things that are like real and painful. And you know, in your interactions with people on a daily basis, you don't, you don't get to go into that stuff. You don't get to go into, well, I, I miss my dead father a lot right now and I'm struggling and I'm depressed and all this stuff. You don't get to actually share your feelings and emotions. So for me, art is about feeling and emotions. And that's a very different way to view art than some people. Some people go to art for more intellectual reasons. You know, people who watch like a late Godard film, you know, they want some kind of intellectual stimulation or engagement. And I find Godard incredibly just distant and impossible to understand for the most part, his later work, once it got very political. I, I need art that makes me feel. I need art that evokes emotions inside of me, that talks about experiences that I can dive into and explore. And I think Rampling would agree with that, that that provokes these thoughts and these emotions. And um, so that's not how everybody goes to art or relates to art. But for me, it's about the emotions and the feelings. And so this film for me does all of that. It brings out, as you can tell, a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings and a lot of memories and a lot of my own struggles and experiences. And so I wanted to talk about that and share that. And I hope I, I hope I did the film justice. It's, it's a stunning film and I'm really glad that I finally covered it on the podcast because it means a lot to me. It means more than I can really say, but I tried to express some of that in this episode. So I definitely appreciate you listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.